Educational Perspectives, the podcast. I'm your host, Itumeleng Tzadzi Mosala, and I will be facilitating meaningful conversations with occupational therapists across the globe who are movers and shakers in our profession. We will celebrate their wins, their struggles, as well as challenges as we find out internal and external factors that contributed to the pioneers that they are today. So if the vibes are right, sit back, relax, and join me as I unpack their occupational perspective. Our guest today is Dr. Dieketzingnet. She's an occupational therapist with a Master of Philosophy in Disability Studies, as well as a PhD in Health Sciences Rehabilitation from Stellenbosch University. She's a senior lecturer at the Center for Disability and Rehabilitation Studies within the Department of Global Health at Stellenbosch University, as well as editor-in-chief of the African Journal of Disability. She convenes the Postgraduate Diploma in Disability and Rehabilitation. In 2019, Diegeteng was recognized as part of the Mail and Guardian Top 200 Young South African Leaders. In 2020 to 2021, she was awarded as a Distinguished J. Skewell Fellow. She serves as the country's representative for the Community-Based Rehabilitation Africa Network. Her research interests are critical disability studies and community integration of disabled people, indigenous knowledge and methodologies, and decolonial health and education. Her work is published in various accredited international journals and books. She is also the lead editor for an upcoming international Routledge handbook on disability and global health. In this episode, Diegetzen takes us through her journey as an academic and how she navigated the space at a fairly young age. She shares how discipline and consistency have helped her to achieve her life goals, the biggest being finishing her PhD before the age of 30. She touches on some of the challenges she experiences as a black young woman in academia and how she affirms herself in the space. She unpacks the pressure that comes with being an academic and some of the potholes that comes with the journey. She finally lets us into the experience of being nominated as a 200 Young South African Class of 2019 and some of the things she does to continue to celebrate her wins. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited to unpack Diegeteng's story. So let's jump straight into this episode. Hello, Diegeteng. Welcome to Occupational Perspectives, the podcast. Thank you so much uh, for welcoming me to me. Uh, I'm glad you invited me and I look forward to this. Yes, I'm also looking forward to our conversation because I've been one of the people that's been watching you from a distance um, in terms of your career development. And if I'm not mistaken, you used to give lectures when I was a student at UCT. Yes, yes, that's correct. That's yeah, correct. so that's why. Yeah, that's where <laughs> I know you from. And then you disappeared, and then I was like, "Hey, well, what happened to Diegetzing?" Um, and then I think I, you know, I was following your journey obviously on Twitter as well. And then next thing I see, Diegetzing is part of the two hundred. Um, Mail and Guardians 200 Young South Africans. So I was like, mm, mm. so you went, um, you disappeared and then you came back with bombs. And so <laughs> I'm very excited to unpack that and just for everyone to understand your journey and, you know, how you got to where you are today. So if you don't mind me asking, can you just, can you just give us a background of who you are and what you do? Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, no, I remember the UCT times uh, very clearly. Um, feels like yesterday. Um, basically, so so everyone, I'm um, Diegetzing Ned. Um, born and bred in Mount Fletcher, 
uh, in the Eastern Cape. Um, so I started there basically, and I think the only time I then exited the Eastern Cape was when I came for university in Cape Town. I uh, studied at uh, the University of the Western Cape. That's why I did my undergraduate degree uh, in occupational therapy. I then went back to Eastern Cape for my community service. Um, and then I worked an additional two years as well after community service. And then I came back to mm. Cape Town. Um, at the time I was already enrolled for my master's. I started my master's just a year after my community service year. And I think that's really why I uh, made my way back to Cape Town. It was exactly because of those masters and, you know, beginning to think of starting a career in academia. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so, so I think that's, that's why, and that's where you and I met them at UCT. Yeah. Um, at the time I was, I was doing my last year of my master's and then I was doing some clinical education for the d- division of occupational therapy. I was do- also doing some research assistant work for the division of disability studies. So we met at that time. So yeah. um, I com- completed then my master's. Um, and then I got a permanent post at Stellenbosch University. I think that is the time when I then disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> I left UCT at that time. So um, I've been then at Stellenbosch uh, since yes. then. I Yes, I did my PhD there at Stellenbosch. And yeah, um, it's been a, a lovely journey. And I think maybe I can stop there for now and you can ask more questions. <laughs> no, if you, if you feel like you, you know, if you feel like you want to flow, this is your interview. It's your conversation. So keep it going. We love long stories here. Um, <laughs> all right. So I understand. So you came back to the University of Cape Town to complete your master's. Um, why? Or maybe let me let me take it a bit a bit back in terms of you studying occupational therapy. When did you decide to study occupational therapy and why? Um, I think it was when I was in grade 11. Grade 11, you know, that time when all of us are applying, you know, trying to look at what am I going to study um, when I go to varsity. You know, you, you start really thinking deeper about um, your career future and what you want to go into. Um, at the moment, at that time, I actually didn't know about occupational therapy. Um, um, I had some slight interest in social work, uh, which I also think was just by coincidence, because I was really not, um, I don't think I was exposed. I mean, I'm from a small town in the Eastern Cape. We didn't have um, things like career exhibitions mm. or have people come into our schools and you know expose us to different kinds of options we didn't have all those things mm. so basically one was only exposed to um occupations that you commonly see on an everyday basis and yeah. um, you know my own my, my own mother and my father were working at the hospital as well so obviously then I was more much more exposed to those um, health related mm-hmm. um, options. But even then it was only like the common ones, you know, 
Um, so, so I had some just slight interest in social work. Um, I cannot even say, I keep thinking to myself, where was that interest coming from? Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I can't seem to answer that question. But so as we were then engaging, you know, with our parents and um, asking for their advice in terms of what options could we choose when we are applying and all that. So my mom uh, took us to the hospital. Uh, she was at the clinic at the time, but then she took us to the main hospital. And then, um, and the reason for that was that uh, she had said that there is a, a lady who just started at the hospital. She's apparently doing something called occupational therapy. It seems interesting. Maybe I could have a talk with her and find out it seems like um, she works quite a lot with people with disabilities. Um, we also had a home for children with disabilities not far from where um, we are staying. So um, the lady also actually took me to that home when I went to visit her at the hospital and she was you know, just showing me a bit of um, what she does, what her day looks like. Um, yeah, so 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 that's when I actually know, knew about um, occupational therapy. Um, my father was a, a physiotherapist assistant. Oh. Um, so 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 I was aware of that, but I also didn't quite understand what it is that he actually does um, on a day to day basis, mm. and and we didn't really like visit him quite a lot at the hospital we were in a boarding school mm. so would only come home um, over holidays so so that's when then um, after this visitation then to the occupational therapist who was working working at the hospital in Mount Fletcher I was then um, immediately you know, uh, interested and I was like okay I'm going to try this out I'm going to put it as my first choice and we can see where it takes me, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so I applied. I applied for that. Um, my sister applied for dietetics. So yeah. that's that's how um, we really um, entered. So part of me, I think that uh, being in the health field was very much influenced by uh, the fact that both our parents mm-hmm. were health workers. You know, my mom was a nursing assistant. My father was a physiotherapy assistant. So I think that already. Um, shaped uh, in a way um, the direction that we take um, but strangely then my brother is the only one who went out of the health sciences mm. um, you know so but my sister and I are, um, are in the health sciences so so I think that's that's what really um, shaped me so so then I started the University of Cape Town and I started really enjoying and obviously gaining a much more deeper understanding then mm. um, of what occupational therapists do because of the different subjects that we were doing uh, when we were studying and the exposure that we were getting while studying. So I think then the understanding started being broadened from that angle. And mm. um, I would say that even then when starting working, one then uh, continued to in a way broaden the understanding of what occupational therapists can do. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think that your trajectory or why why you chose to 
to study occupational therapy as a whole, I see the influence, you know, your parents, the fact that you are even exposed to disability homes for children, you know, you had access to the hospital setting. I see how that sort of um, influenced your trajectory. And this leads me to my next question about your specialization in disability studies. Why did you choose, you know, Mm. Why did you choose to go in that in that direction? Mm, okay, all right, yeah. So, so basically, this this one came. This interest came when I was doing my community service. You know, I, I started being more drawn to uh, community development work. You know, community based uh, rehabilitation. I started being with drawn drawn more to um, issues related to activism or. Mm. Uh, advocacy um, because I think when 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 I was doing my community service um, we worked quite a lot in the community through fighting anyway because um, the bureaucracy was that we must remain institutionalized you know and provide mm. services within the chain and you know I think um, we went in already with that understanding that, you know, when you're doing community service, the whole purpose of community service was uh, bringing services closer to the people. And so we were always fighting to go for um, uh, to go to the communities and provide services there, because most of the time uh, we were actually sitting at the hospital without any patients. Mm. So we wouldn't be seeing um, anyone um whether that was due to lack of referrals from the doctors um, or that um, whilst dressing a patient, um, before you know it, they have actually disappeared. Basically, mm. the discharge happened, you were not involved in that. So, so mm. we always tried to you know, follow up and you know, try and see where our patients are staying. And we wanted to go to the community then. Uh, for that purpose, you know, and just bring services much more through. So we were also, um, we're doing quite a lot of education as well, because uh, many people didn't understand what um, rehabilitation was all about. So mm. um, especially occupational therapy, people would know that there's a physiotherapist day, but occupational therapist and audiologist and speech therapist, they really didn't have a clearer understanding of what it is that we do. So so um, our drive for doing more community outreach and try to do community-based rehabilitation was really coming um, from that angle. So, so I think it is there then that I, I developed much more interest in terms of you know, disability work broadly, um, participation of people with disabilities, how do we do advocacy work for disability, um, and and generally, you know, community mobilization so that mm. um, persons with disabilities um, also realize the rights that they have, like everyone else, and are able to participate in their communities and generally also just improving their understanding of disability. So that's when um, I... Um, uh, I became aware of the Masters in Disability Studies um, I think at the time, uh, Medi Duncan, mm. uh, I think she's retired now. She was at uh, UCT in OT at the time. Uh, she and 
Kate, Sherry, I think Teresa was also there at some point. They had a project that they were doing in, in Maunfre. And this is where I was doing my community service. Yeah. So the, the, the research project that they were doing there in one of the villages that was in Boza. And so one of the visits that they had there, I think it was uh, like one of the first few visits that they had, they were still doing like community entry in the communities. So they visited the hospital. Um, they wanted to know if there are any rehab and you know therapists working in Mount Frey and because they were also you know picking up some cases in the community and they, so they would try and refer so that's how we then um, got introduced to them and got to understand what they are doing as well the research they are doing and how we can link it up with the services that we were providing there and I think that's when I then got more information about disability studies and I was okay. instantly just interested in enrolling. So I immediately just applied. I was like, next day I'm doing my master's in disability studies. Mm -hmm. So I got accepted. Um, and and that's where my, my journey in disability studies um, started. Um, I was very much resistant to specializing in, in OT specifically because when I was doing my investigations, um, I actually found out that if I specialize in OT, then I have to choose one particular focus. Mm. Uh, so for instance, if, if, if I'm interested in, in work assessment, that, that's where I need to specialize in, and that's what I will do yeah. um, throughout. And I didn't want that. Um, that was too limiting for me. You know, I still wanted to do quite a a bit you know within OT and and I was looking really for something that would be broad enough for me to be able to enter different spaces and still um, do quite a bit more with uh, the qualifications that I had so so that's when I, I was completely then convinced that you know maybe then going for disability studies is is better for me mm. and I can still um, also align it with the interests that I have um, within occupational therapy itself. Okay. Yeah, so, so, so it started there, started there and then um, after the master's there was no turning back then I um, even my PhD then was um, in disability and rehabilitation. Even though I didn't specifically do research that is mainly located within disability issues, it was, I kept it broad, but my PhD is in health sciences rehabilitation. Oh, I see, I see. All right, so I'm quite interested in your upbringing, you know? Um, you've briefly mm -hmm. mentioned about your your mother and your father being in the health sector as well. But um, how would you describe your upbringing and how would you say that has sort of influenced that, the type of person that you are today? Uh, <laughs> that's always a difficult question. Mm. <laughs> um, I think my, 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 my parents were in, in a way the same. They were both very strict. Um, mm. We were always, you know, within the compound itself not allowed to play outside um so in a way uh, we were very much cushioned mm -hmm. and uh, in a very much more protected um, environment in a way 
Um, so, so I think um, that itself, you know, shaped us into focusing quite a lot on our studies. You know, they they really instilled that um, in within us. You know, they wanted us to focus on our studies. So they kept uh, telling us that you know. If you study, uh, no one can take that away from you, you know, and that will give you much more opportunities. You always have a backup plan to fall back on. Mm. So it's very important that you take your education serious and all that. So, so we've always been um, brought up in that way. And I think my love for academia also comes from, from that. Yeah, so there yeah. wasn't, well, we used to complain at the time because, you know, there wasn't much time for leisure and, mm. you know, you'd always watch um, other children you are playing in the street and you envy that, you want to also be there. So, so we're limited a bit in terms of um, of that, which I always find interesting because, you know, in occupational therapy, you always preach about the, the whole thing of occupational balance. Yes, yes. <laughs> and when I look back, and how I grew up, I wouldn't necessarily think that I had that occupational balance. Mm. Um, but I think that um, the values uh, that were instilled were certainly uh, very much helpful um, in, I think, also protecting us from quite a lot that mm. happens out there in the streets, you know, um, um, whereby... Um, maybe you'd exposed to the wrong group, for instance, you know, and, and are participating in, in risky activities, you know. Yeah. That would then essentially mess up with your, um, with the values that are instilled within the home or even mess up with um, your potential in terms of um, getting to study and being fo a focused person. So I think that it, it certainly helped in terms of, of that, um, especially growing up in a small town mm. um, where there's limited exposure there's, um, to even positive role models, you know. So um, one can quickly um, uh, get into into um, misbehaving and all that. So, so I think it influenced um, me in that way. Um, yeah. I am, um, my, my siblings are a bit different though in that they feel that they are okay with their, with their degrees. They don't want to study further. <laughs> so I'm, I, in a way, I'm the only one who just loves studying and um don't seem to stop but I have stopped now I'm not enrolled for anything <laughs> but you are you are editor of a of a journal aren't you <laughs> I am. so I am. so in I essence am. you haven't stopped in essence you haven't stopped <laughs> <laughs> that is true that is true that is true yeah but um I think I I, I really love um academia I love studying I love um everything related to research um and I think um that's that's why my career has actually taken the direction that it has taken it's that love for for research I think as I went on for more specialization uh, the the more I I had less interest in clinical work mm. and rather developed you know this new love for research you know for knowledge production 
Mm. And I think that's why I'm, I'm where I am. That's why I took on the editing job. Um, yeah. Sure, that is, that is quite interesting. I think now, um, you know, when I reflect on your journey and where you are now, um, it, it kind of makes sense. It makes sense because, you know, usually people get their PhDs in like their late 30s um, mm. when they're much older and you got it fairly young, I would say. Yeah. Um, so now that kind of makes sense for me why, why you know, it, it worked out like that. So you keep mentioning mm. um, values that you were raised by, you know, values of your home when growing up. What are some of the values that you live by? Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a person of discipline. That, that I think I value more than anything. Um, I, I think that uh, without discipline, um, there's no way that you can be able to achieve everything that you want to achieve within the timelines that you've set for yourself. So I think that discipline is very much important. Mm. Um, obviously, also coupled with consistency as well. I think those are the two principles that um, I always remind myself on and always emphasize that I need to um, stick by them because mm. I feel strong that they got me um, where I am, you know, if I, if I wasn't consistently working on completing my studies, I wouldn't have gotten my PhD uh, before the age of 30, like I had set for myself. So I'm, I'm that type of a person who puts timelines in everything that I want to do. And I would tell myself that I need to complete it by this time. And I believe that what actually makes me realize those uh, goals that I set for myself is exactly those two principles, discipline and consistency. So I live by that. Um, I value um, the concept of uh, doing what you know you should be doing and mm. doing, um, like not basically not waiting for people to tell you that you need to do something. I believe that we all know what we need to be doing. And um, it is then up to us to discipline ourselves to be able to enact that on an everyday basis. So I think that's, that's, that's really um, what pushes me. That's how I live my life. That's how I take um, all decisions. It's based on those two. Oh, wow. You are uh, preaching to me now with that whole, you know what you're going to be doing, so just do it. <laughs> <laughs> so just do it just get it done sure that is that is quite interesting so you speak about you know you I mean you got your PhD before the age of 30 that's that is quite an achievement I mean and and <laughs> very reflective of what you're saying like if you you set timelines for yourself and you live by those and you just go for them I think that is something to that is something quite commendable so you yeah. obviously entered the academic space at a fairly young age as well. And I just want yeah. to know of your experience um, as an academic, you know, um, your experience as an academic, but not only an academic, a black academic, um, is particularly at that young age. So how was it mm. like, like your honest experience? I personally found it, you know, quite challenging. Um, mm. Found it very 
yeah, quite tricky to navigate. So I just want to know your experience of, you know, entering the academic space, as particularly mm-hmm. at a young age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I agree with you. I think I share the same sentiments that it, it is quite challenging uh, to join academia. Um, precisely, I think, because of also these uh, two issues that you mentioned, you know, you are young. That's mm. that its own dynamics on its own. Um, you are also black, mm. which also brings um, uh, its own dynamics. You know, we know um, how the systems in South Africa are, you know, we operate mm. within white monopoly capital. And so um, we don't enter from the same level or angle uh, compared to our white counterparts. Mm. So, so I think um, that was a bit challenging. Um, the age issue uh, was mainly related to the fact that I was work- always working with people who are much more older than me. Mm. And, and that was not only like two years age difference, five years age difference. It's more than five years or even more than 10 years. Yeah. You know? Always exposed to that. And sometimes, you know, you experience that patronizing um, type of engagement, you know, that you are always young and in every um, engagement that happens, uh, people will remind you that you are young as if um, you are not supposed to maybe disagree with a particular narrative on the basis of being young, like what's age got to do with it? You know, we mm. are having a scholarly engagement and here. I don't understand why I need to be reminded that I'm young. So, so I, I always found those type of engagements very patronizing, you know, um, you know, even to a point of where people would remind you, would would actually make comments like, you know, when you are older, you'll understand a particular sure. thing. You know, it's like, okay, um, I don't get that. Or, or that you are maybe attending the same meeting or a conference and all that. And you sort of get this sense that there's the expectation that you must now make tea for the elders. <laughs> but, ah. but we are all colleagues. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> we are Imagine. all colleagues here, and I mean, it's something that never even registered in my mind, you know, because I've always, you know, viewed everyone as like we are colleagues, you know, mm. there was no, you know, I'm young, you are older, and all that. Obviously, there's respect for everyone and all that, and you are aware that you are working with much more older people. But also, when we are being all colleagues, we are then colleagues, you know, there mustn't be anything that suggests that you must serve a particular person because you know you are younger so so those were the dynamics that I experienced when it came to age differences mm. um, then when it came to the fact that I'm a black uh, woman um, that introduced other dynamics then as well um, you know um, there are instances where you would be undermined uh, or you say something and you're basically not heard mm. um, and the conversation just continues like that or you would hear maybe a white counterpart then in a way repeating what you have just said but using better English yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then all of a sudden the idea would be taken and you sit there wondering but that's what I that's just exactly said. That's exactly what I said. Uh, 
no one took it serious, you know. Mm. So those things um, happen quite a lot. They still do happen. Um, but I would say that they're a bit much better now uh, with the title. Mm. Uh, so so I, I, I think I, I felt a difference when I got my PhD and there was that doctor title next to it, you know. Sure. People are a, a, a bit much more responsive now. Um, compared to when you didn't have that title. So I think um, that in a way also adds a bit more pressure, you know, when you are in academia, because that title is what gains you a bit more respect, especially when you are black and you are a woman, mm. and you are young, you know. So, so that responsiveness in a way changed uh, when I got my PhD. Uh, but I think uh, pursuing it, though, had nothing to do with that. But on the other hand, I would say that I've had like positive experiences. I think also people that I was exposed to and working very much closely to um, gave me um, a different experience or a much more positive outlook of academia. I mean, when I joined UCT, um, Eleluani was the head of department at that time. And so my first um, engagement with uh, the OT department was um, via Eleluani. And she is just a breath of fresh and amazing human being. Mm. And so that, I think that um, provided me with a uh, a bit more of positive role models in academia and it provided me with um, you know safe space in terms of knowing that you have these mentors that you can always go to mm. and seek for assistance seek for advice when you when you are faced with difficult situations in academia um, my own HOD at Stellenbosch as well is a black woman um, mm. that also um gives a different type of experience compared to other people who'd, for instance, narrate horrible stories about HODs, you know, in these um, white institutions. So yeah, that has been my experience. Sure, wow, I, I resonated quite a lot with that, especially the part about having mentors that look like you, ne? and um, yeah. yeah, just seeing other people doing it. I mean. I, I look at my own experience and how people like yourself, you know, the likes of Matumo, Elelwani, they really, they really make that um, aspiration possible because you're seeing somebody else that looks like you that is also navigating that space. So, yeah, I, I agree yeah. with you there. That really helps. So how do you, how do you affirm yourself in that space? Um, how do I affirm myself? Um, I think I think um, being able to see that you know some of the uh, goals that I've set for myself, I'm able to tick off and say I've achieved this, I've achieved this, I've achieved this. I think that's that 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 that's like a great source of affirmation for me. You know, mm. um, in academia also you get quite a lot of. 
recognition, you know, whether through uh, being invited to speak at a particular event. Mm. Um, and some of these um, events are quite prestigious. And so you, you, you get invitations. And I think that's uh, such a great source of affirmation as well, because in a way it's communicating to you that people are recognizing yeah. you, people are seeing the work that you are doing, people resonate or like the work that you are doing. Um, and so it means I'm doing, I'm doing something right, yeah. you know? So I think, I think those um, um, milestones, I think as little as we may look at them, I think they are a great source of affirmation. And in a way, um, acting your back to say, you know, continue doing what you are doing, mm. you know? So, so I think um, I, I absolutely value um, those. Or some, sometimes you get people, you know, contacting you, wanting to collaborate with you. You know, let's do this research together, or let's write this paper together. Um, so, so it's those as well. And I think also, you know, um, having those um, small groups or your people in a way that know that you know you're always go to. Um, like I say, I have Boelelwane maps for Matumo, mm. um, my own colleagues as well at Stellenbosch. You know, I know I can, those are people I know that I can always run to and say, you know, um, I'm stuck here and let's do this. And I think that feedback that we give to each other mm. is such a good source of affirmation in a way so so yeah so so that's um yeah and i think generally just looking after yourself is also a great source of uh, affirmation you know um academia is a very violent uh, space yeah. <laughs> so i think <laughs> i think uh, one must always have a safe space where you just you know vent debrief and um you know just check in with yourself and and touch bases and, and see that, okay, um, I'm doing everything right. Despite the pressures, I'm not failing. And I am doing something right. So, so it's that space um, that I value so much. For me, I also like to do uh, therapy like once a month. Once a month, I would see a psychologist, you know, just even if there is nothing that's bothering me, just, just knowing that I have that space and someone to listen to me and mm. and and advise me or, or or you know in terms of how do I always make sure that I look after myself and that my my mental health is is important you know? mm-hmm. some of the affirmations that you have received um one of them publicly was being nominated as one of the 200 young South Africans class of 2019 am I right Yes, 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 as of 2019. So, um, you know, that was quite a big recognition that you get. Can you maybe just take us through your experience of even finding out that you are part of the 200 young South Africans and the impact that has had on your career as well? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so basically, um, I started, you know, receiving, you know, texts and emails from some of my friends and my colleagues, you know, sharing about um, the nominations and and all of them were basically saying we are nominating you, so don't be surprised. Um, So, so I think that that was... uh, that was just exciting to to witness in a way, you know, 
you know, when people see this call for nominations and my name came Think up, of you. you know, yeah. Um, yeah, so so that that was uh, quite an exciting journey. Um, and then beyond that, then getting that first email from Bellin Guardian to say, you know, you've been nominated, um, someone will be in touch with you to do an interview, and, you know, all those different steps um, that you go through, very nerve-wracking as well, because you are thinking, okay, will I make it to the top two? Yeah. <laughs> Because you don't know what's happening behind the scenes and yeah. how the assessment works and all that. So you are just seeing these different steps and like, okay, I need to navigate those different steps and then I'll only see at the end that I'm there. So so it was just that. And you know, um when I got, I think when I got that first email you know that's when uh, it really dawned on me okay okay my friends were actually serious about this thing um I I'm a person who really doesn't like spotlight that much and mm. um, so when things like that happen I first get very anxious you know it's like okay okay uh, do I have to now be um in front of people do I have to talk do I have to do this like what what, what does this come with you know mm. uh, because I don't really like spotlight that I think it it provokes so much anxiety to me um so 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 then then um then after that then uh, you know when I've processed everything then I will be okay with it so I then I started responding to those emails um uh, what was also exciting is that process where you then get this interview and you have this person who's asking you about your journey um, you have to respond to that um, which has been something that I had to get used to as well because I think I I struggled to speak about myself mm. and my achievements you know um, which is something important that we must do by the way I, I don't know why we always struggle to speak about ourselves and you know boast about the achievements that mm. we do but uh, you know, it's, a, it's something that I had to it's a space that I had to enter into and be comfortable in doing that so so that on its own was exciting obviously then leading up to the big announcement then the extra event where you are invited and you know your names are called up there um and all this then becomes real in yeah. some sense and and you have to celebrate that and i think one thing that that achievement has taught me is to learn to celebrate myself and I think that from then onwards I've learned to you know just celebrate your achievements celebrate um the recognitions that you get and, mm. and believe in in those recognitions as well because it's one thing to be recognized and it's another to still continue doubting Mm. yourself despite those recognitions so so I've been you know in a way improving in terms of um learning to just celebrate myself learning to pat myself on the back and say do mm. you actually do well for yourself yeah sure I, I I I think that's also something I struggle with like recognizing the hard work that I put into certain things and mm. recognizing that they are or they did come to fruition I think I'm I'm one person that you know after achieving something I'm like okay that's done next um you mm. know I never take time to actually take it all in 
and, mm. and, and sit and bask in them. So I think that's something that one, one could take away from this to actually sit and, and celebrate, um, celebrate your, your wins. Um, speaking yeah. of, of celebrating your wins, you know, a lot of times people don't realize that there are potholes on the journey, you know, it's mm-hmm. not always wins, 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 um, even though wins are mostly some of the things that people see. So I just want to find out mm-hmm. from you, what are some of the lowlights or disappointments um, that you've experienced in your career, but at the same time mm-hmm. have shaped um, the woman that you are today? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think, um, you know, being in the academic space, um, you have to apply for grants um, to be able to fund the research activities that you want to do. You have to publish, you have, and all those things actually come with quite a lot of rejections. Um, I've had quite a lot of papers rejected and mm. it was not nice. It was not a nice feeling. I've had quite a lot of grant applications rejected and that too was never a, a nice feeling and mm. I, don't, I don't think um, there's anyone who uh, who actually gets to a point where they get used to those those rejections it's just that we we come up with strategies on how we handle them so for instance mm. if you receive a rejection of a paper um, you just um, automatically switch into a positive mode and like okay it's fine let me look for another journal and tweak this paper and submit it elsewhere you know maybe to receive um, better feedback somewhere else so I think that those are the common challenges um, in academia uh, obviously there are also opportunities that as a person you eye out and it's like okay let me apply for a specific um, job or let me apply for um, um, or maybe even apply for specific um, awards, you know, and, mm. and and you don't become successful in that. So so those are some of the of the laws that you you go through, um, and you have to get used to them and not let them uh, in a way um, influence you in a negative way. Um, if I can make an example to say okay, I'm going to stop applying for grants because now these big ones are not successful, you know. Mm. You just continue trying until you you get something, you know. And I think also there's also different levels of, uh, of opportunities that you apply for, you know. There are um, ones that you can easily get. There are ones that are, you know, massive grants and um, you are not there yet, you know. It's, it's mm. not your time yet, you know. You get used to to that you know you keep trying um as long as you don't stop uh trying out you know some specific opportunities so i think those are the uh, some of the challenges that one goes through in the academic space because these are things that are part of your performance um areas and so you have to do them and and so you you do those things um you uh, there are also challenges uh you know when dealing with students you know <laughs> some relationships won't be so good um you receive horrible emails and you you have to you have to handle that you know mm. in a way um and one is always you know 
navigating a point where you don't let um, some of the hectic emails that you get, whether from students or from colleagues, you know, put you down or mm. make you doubt that which you do. Mm. So it's always those, I think those are the um, common challenges in a way uh, that I'm highlighting when you are in, a, in an academic space, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I think then maybe not so common or maybe common for other people. I think what I've also experienced, you know, is where, you know, people would take your work and not acknowledge you. Sure. Um, I think thing that happens uh, quite a lot um in academia you know um yeah so so it's those things um uh, some of the challenges that have experiences also um teamwork um you know academia pushes quite a lot you know especially when you're applying for for grants there's quite a lot of collaboration that is emphasized on um, which is good it's very important that we must collaborate um but these teams do not always work out so mm. well in a, you know um maybe also due to differences in work ethics or, or any other issues but uh, some way somehow these teams sometimes do not work out so well or you end up being the only one putting in the work and mm. um, while people are dragging their feet so it can be very challenging because you have timelines for a particular project and those need to be met and mm. what does it then mean if you have to be the one doing all the work when you have other things to do as well you know it creates um, so much unnecessary burdens in terms of um, increased workload and and it's something that always happens mm. and I, I, I haven't figured out how one um, should navigate those things because at the end of the day it is important to collaborate mm. um, because despite the challenges we learn so much from each other and we grow um, but I think one thing that I've always exercised is the fact that you know um, I always observe people's work ethics and um, I would work and complete what I need to do but uh, the lesson for me is always to say, okay, um, if another collaboration comes, at least I now know that I can work with this particular yeah. person because their work ethic doesn't really align with mine, you mm -hmm. know, things like that. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, that's that. That's really the some of the challenges that I've, I've faced. Really. Um. What would you say is the most challenging part about your job? The pressure. <laughs> mm. the pressure the pressure to publish the pressure to bring more funds uh, you know it's i think it's 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 not healthy sometimes it's oh, very I'm not glad healthy. you said it <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad you said it i think it's, i yeah no you can speak i'll i'll say yeah. my two cents yeah yeah it's 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 too much i mean you you have to teach you have to produce publications. You have to bring so much money to the university. Uh, uh, yeah, so it's all those things. that they, and, and you also know that some of these things are really about what brings more money for the mm. university. So it's not like you um, are 
benefiting that much. You are benefiting in the sense that it's the same criteria that are used for you to get a promotion, for mm. you to get rated and all those things. Um, so there's no way of, in a way, running away from them if you want to also progress, you mm. know, according to the criteria of, of the academic spaces uh, but uh, it's too much pressure it can be too much sometimes um, I think for me I'm lucky because um, I only do postgraduate teaching mm. and not undergrad so postgraduate teaching I find it less intensive in terms of teaching compared to undergraduate teaching so that in on its own makes things much more better but it still doesn't take away that pressure you must publish more you must bring more funding you know to all those things because even your own activities as well now must be funded by that you really hardly get any uh, money or support from the university to mm. say, okay let's assist you um, with publication fees for instance you have to raise that money as well um, when when you run out of the publication incentives that you got you still need to use your third stream income to assist you with whether editing a manuscript mm. or paying publication fees so yeah it's it's really just that pressure for me yeah yeah, I was saying that I, I was talking to a friend that I think academia is the most unrealistic um, space to work in because what is expected mm-hmm. of you in that eight hours um, that you are appointed for, it's, 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 it's never really eight hours in a day um, mm. that you used to work. It's always more than that, you know? So I just mm. find that if you don't draw those boundaries um, for yourself, um, you can find yourself mm-hmm. compromising your mental health quite a lot and your physical health mm-hmm. sometimes. And I think for me last year, towards the end of the year, I had taken in so much work, so much work. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, at the end of the year with like externaling and like uh, marking mm-hmm. dissertations and all of that teaching, and then they still marking your own exams and they still marking yeah. your medical exams on and all of that. I, I realized right at the end of the year that, you know what, I think I've, I, I bit way more than I can swallow. And my, yeah. unfortunately, my physical health took a dip and mm-hmm. yeah, so I didn't really have a holiday, like a, you know, enjoyable holiday. I was trying to recover. So I think mm-hmm. if you, if you don't um, fence yourself um, mm-hmm. and keep saying yes to everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's tricky because those things you're saying yes to are needed for that promotion that you want, you know, Yeah. Um, for the yeah. rating. So it's really, sure, it can, it can be quite stressful, I've found. Can, okay. Yeah. 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 No, it is, it is very much stressful. And I agree that you, you end up working more than the working hours mm. that you are employed for. I mean, we do quite a lot of writing at night. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, write those publications because during the day you are busy attending to other issues, especially yeah. like academic, you know, if you are not teaching. So it's, it's, it's really... It, it's really hectic and it can be detrimental to your health. So um, I'm so sorry about what you experienced. <laughs> I mean, it is what it is, isn't it? I, I, that's how I yeah. took it. I was just like, well, if you want the rain, you have to put up with the puddles. But I think it, it also takes a lot of acknowledging that. And I think for, 
you know, it academia also comes with a lot of glorified, we we mm. glorify hard work and struggle and mm. you know, mm. like it, it's almost like you have to you have to work really, really hard or you have to really yeah. struggle before you get something. So yeah, sometimes I find it very unrealistic in terms of the expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It can. It can be. It. It really is um, unrealistic. I mean, I. I. I guess it also gets easier as you climb up, mm-hmm. um, because then once you've reached that point where you have these massive um, grants, um, you are able to buy out time. You know, mm-hmm. get some assistance and all that, and 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 that's where it becomes. That's where uh, it really becomes unrealistic because when you don't have all that capital mm. on the side to buy in um, people to assist with some of your tasks how do you then uh, navigate um, completing all those tasks you know they mm. all have to be done by you um, and eight hours is not enough in, mm. in, in that way whereas someone who's already high up there who has um, quite a lot of extra funds on the side, they are able to, to employ research assistants, you know, to assist with some of the activities, whether it's data collection for your research or maybe um, getting a lecture replacement. So mm. someone takes over by your teaching and all that. So, so it's those things, yeah. And I guess so also... I it gets better the high the higher you go, but I think also you know that transparency to say actually it's it the higher you go it gets better because I think you know the way that I mean for me um you know I, I've always aspired to becoming an academic I mean after seeing people like you people like Ellie um people like Matumo and so forth I've always just. I've always seen myself as an academic and when I struggled in the, within the clinical space, um, you know, I, I didn't really, I wouldn't say I didn't enjoy it, but I wasn't thriving. I just felt like I'm not maximizing my, my potential as much as I could. When I entered the yeah. academic space, my expectation was that from the onset, it's set up that you will have grants and you will have this, you will have, do you get what I mean? Yeah. So, so it, it yeah. wasn't really transparent that no, actually when you start off, it is quite hard because you won't have grants mm-hmm. quickly or you won't get, um, you know, published in five seconds. And I mean, my first publication, I was so shocked that it took me like a whole year. Yeah, yeah. One publication art. I was like, what is this? Like, (laughs) you know, what is this life that um I signed up for? And that is because like no one, no one actually said, Oh, by the way, this will take long, or um, you won't have grants or funds to buy people out. I thought it's it's like part of the package, you know, and Mm. I guess um, yeah, I guess that's why I have this platform as well, just for us to have these conversations that people don't usually um, give out information for free when yeah. you're in the yeah. spaces. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. That's true. I think I think uh, most of us went in 
with that narrative that, you know, some of these things or systems are actually set up for you, not knowing that you actually start from zero and you have to uh, uh, find, find, find yourself for most of these activities, mm. you know, if you don't write those grants. Um, then you struggle a bit. Whereas if you have those grants, you get some assistance in a way. So you raise your own funds to do quite a lot of these activities and um, no one tells you that when you mm. enter these academic spaces, yeah. Sure, anyway, um, we are now entering into my favorite part of the podcast, which is the quick fire questions. So I'm going to ask you five questions and I need you to answer them with um a sentence or two, but as fast as you can. <laughs> okay, now you are putting me on the spot. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I am. Okay, okay, let's let's kick. All right. If you had to eat one thing um, for every meal going forward, what would it be? Spinach. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Do you prefer a safari or beach holiday? A beach holiday. Okay. Knowing what you know now, what would you say to your 18-year-old self in the first year of your studies? Be kind to yourself. Don't always put pressure on yourself. Hmm. If you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? It would be my dad. I think I, I think I lost him quite early. Mm. Okay. So I think I think uh, I would have loved him to see where I am now. Yeah. 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 All right. And the last question that I'm going to ask you: What is your occupational perspective? So how do you view occupation? I think it's about um, daily doing everything that we everything that we do on a daily basis. That is basically in a nutshell what it is in simple terms for me. All right, we have come to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. If people want to um, stay in contact with you or they've heard something, they want to ask you something, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me uh, via my email. Uh, that's diegetseng at sun.ac.za. The diegetseng is spelled with an L, by the way. So, yeah, I think I'm always available there. I, I easily access my emails, so I'm quite responsive there. Or they can DM me, but I'm not always on Twitter. I think my email is is what I can easily Are you access. sure you're not always on Twitter, diegetseng? I, I swear, I swear, like, I, are you sure? I, I, I am, I'm very sure, I'm very sure. Okay, no I'm worries. Of that <laughs> oh, man. Thank you so much for your time. I really, I really enjoyed your, your interview and I've learned quite a lot. I think one of the things that I'm taking away is to not be too hard on myself and yeah. to also set goals and put timelines to them and just do the work. Like what you said about it gets easier as you advance. So the quicker you put in the work and get there, then you get to enjoy the benefits of, of the space. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very true. That's very true. Thank you so much for inviting me as well. And I'm sincerely sorry once again, that it took so long. For Yo, us to people have... are busy, bruh. <laughs> <laughs>
pandemic. It was quite hectic. It was quite hectic. Yeah, no, I but, understand. Um, I understand. I'm glad that we finally spoke. All right, bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Occupational Perspectives. I hope our girl's journey has inspired you to work on becoming the occupational therapist of your dreams. From me, both the ordinary and extraordinary are a result of occupation. So keep doing what you do. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends and engage with us on Instagram. Until next time, bye-bye.